For a long time now, I thought I was just a survivor, but I'm not. I'm the winner. That's who I am. The Time Lord Victorious. Welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Jason. And I'm Bryn. We're back in Time Lord Victoria's territory with this episode, covering Una McCormick's novel, All Flesh is Grass. Uh, we've got two great perspectives on this. Bryn, you've been consuming all of Time Lord Victoria, so as much as you can at the moment. And Jason, I think I'm right in saying this is your first encounter with it? My very first encounter, and quite possibly my only. <laughs> That's great. So it'd be very interesting to see uh, from from that point of view whether it it's, um, it's works as a standalone novel. I um, see, so, uh, Bryn, you've been blogging about the whole of Time Lord Victorious. So I'll put a link in the show notes uh, to where we can find your blog. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'm um, a little bit behind on the blog, but I've been mostly up to date with reading, listening, watching everything, other than a couple bits and pieces, and. Um, I've also had some reviews up early on We Are Cult for the audio dramas, but I've not quite got up on the actual my blog yet, but yeah. Cool, I look forward to reading the rest of those. So this book follows on directly from Steve Cole's novel, The Night, the Fool and the Dead, uh, the finale of which sees the Tenth Doctor donning Time Lord robes to lead his mercenary battle fleet to the destruction of Mordila, the homeworld of the Keturah, uh, and this sort of rewrites that the end of that book to some extent. Um, I don't know what you think about this, Bryn. It felt like the end of The Night, The Fool, and The Dead, the Tenth Doctor was much more decisive. The two Doctors turned up, and he's like, nope, nobody tells me what to do. I'm going to go ahead. He fires the weapon that will uh, that'll destroy the Keturah. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd agree with that assessment of it. It definitely sounds like he's... I suppose it's... The, the actual narrative of what physically happens is the same, but certainly the, the sort of sense of what's going on in the Tenth Doctor's head that we get from the opening of this book suggests a much more tentative um, and more sort of... It almost feels like he's rushed into this decision and is only now sort of realising quite what exactly he's doing. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's like a real shift in tone, Um He's, he's, he's a bit kind of clueless here, really. The opening page says uh, he's trying not to blame the people on the flight deck around him for getting him into this mess. You think, like, this has been entirely his own decision. <laughs> he's got here, you know, kind of completely under his own uh, kind of merit. Um, but this, this Inner McCormick very much softens it. Um, but he has just committed perpetu- um, uh, genocide. Um, but here it's like it's just sort of happened. Um, as we've just been kind of uh, uh, coasting along to it. It's, it's it's an odd shift, I felt like. Yeah, I guess it is that sense of he's sort of been washed away with events, which does kind of fit with some Doctor's characters, and um, but it, it doesn't necessarily feel like, like you say, how the previous book set it up to be. And yeah, I think it's, it is a, an interesting take on the character and one that this book sort of kind of runs with. So whether how well it fits, I think it gets some interesting stuff out of it, although undoubtedly the more confident perspective could have led to another different but equally interesting story. I have to question this then. Again, I'm brand new to the line and I haven't been following up. So 
how does it come to happen that two books, as part of the same tightly edited series, manage to disagree with each other so fundamentally? Is that bad editing, or is that Una McCormack seeing Steve Cole's book and saying, this isn't how it should be at all, and just going off and doing her own thing? It's kind of strange you would get that. It is, yeah. And and because the, the two books are sort of the tent poles of, of the whole time Lord Victorious thing. This is where the the sort of the inciting incident of, of uh, what kind of ripples out through the other various stories and different media happens and then and then is resolved in this second book. So it is a bit yeah. odd. Uh, it does feel like it's maybe not as tight a sort of universe and crossover storyline as they want it to be at times you know that there are i mean it's it's a behemoth project to organize and coordinate stuff and you get the sense that a lot of it was being written at the same time which obviously leads to sort of complications of things you know there's, there's a moment in i think it's the the 10th the doctor comics defender of the darks which is supposed to lead into the eighth doctor audios but when you see a picture of the eighth doctor at the end it's him in his um tv movie costume rather than the one that's on the cover of this book and the big finish audios. And there's that sort of contradiction there where you think, well, somebody's kind of, you know, Mr. Memo or nobody's thought to think, oh, we should get consistency there. And it does, it, yeah. Um, I mean, sort of separate from whether or not this is a good book or a good narrative or, and you know, the same for any of the Tamil Victorious products, but there is a question about how coordinated things are when that was kind of what they were pushing it this project on in the original marketing. And it's also a multimedia platform. They have to have assumed that some of the medias were going to have much bigger sales or readership than the others. So you have to assume that the books, as you say, the tent poles are going to be the biggest selling ones of the lot. The audios will sell a little bit less. The comics will sell a lot less. And the escape rooms, of course, number one, that's only if you're living in the UK. And number two, Thanks to the COVID, they're not happening at all. So the books are where you really should be putting the most effort into continuity because that's really the only ones you can guarantee that everybody's going to read. And at least on the Kindle, my book didn't even come with a previously on time Lord Victorious. So I was just thrown in like a duckling in cold water. And now I'm kind of astounded, having not read the Steve Cole book, I'm kind of astounded that the two books can't even agree with each other on what's happening, which is another factor in my wondering if I'm ever going to experience any of the rest of yeah. this series. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think it makes sense for the Doctor as a character to be uncomfortable at the front of an army. And it's like, it, 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 it takes the direction and it, it does logical things with it, but it does feel... Yeah, I think the, the sort of setup of, oh, the Doctor decides I'm going to destroy death and like is so into that. And then throughout this book he never really goes to dark places in the way um that this sort of premise of oh it's after the waters of mars and he's gonna do something dramatic it, it's almost like the, the previous book set up all of that stuff and that's kind of what people were expecting from marketing and then yet he's quite nice in this book for the most part like the other doctors are still annoyed about what he did and like there's a bit of to and fro but there's no real sense that he's really gone off the deep end or that he's gone you know, evil or anything. It's not quite the sort of character assassination that perhaps I think some people were expecting. Yeah, it's it's a bit like the the big Finnish war doctor stories. I don't mm. know if you ever heard those. Yeah. 
he doesn't do anything that any of the other doctors wouldn't do. Um, they sort of open and close with him talking about, oh, I've got to make the difficult decisions and I'm, you know, sort of, uh, I'm always at the heart of the battle, you know, doing all this stuff. But then in the stories themselves, um, they're, they're fairly, I mean, I enjoy them, but John Hurt's doctor isn't doing things that, that any of the other doctors wouldn't do. Um, he's just not calling himself the doctor. Um, and that's what I felt about this as well, is I don't know if they push it far enough, the whole, the Time Lord Victorious. Because it's that similar sort of thing of uh, maybe, you know, rejecting the title of the Doctor to be to be something else, to be the Time Lord Victorious, as though, you know, that's he can't use that title that he's chosen. He's got to use a different title, and he's wearing the, the Time Lord robes, which he's obviously rejected in the past. Um, but yeah, he's, he's, he's not, he doesn't stray too far. Or the writing doesn't stray too far from the uh, the general tenth Doctor idiom. And speaking of the writing, this is another part that I found off-putting, at least in the beginning, until I got to the actual plot, which was astounding. But this is a book that is written, and it's very unlike Una McCormack's previous work. It is written in short, choppy, staccato sentences, and it verges almost intentionally on self-parody. McCormack is a very good writer. I've liked her other Doctor Who books. I loved her Star Trek Picard book. She is a serious, somber writer. And here, she is writing almost what appears to be a whole goof on the concept of Doctor Who in the first place. So is the entire line written in this jokey, self-parodying kind of way? Or is she just taking an authorial approach to a line that otherwise is very serious and self-important. Yeah, I think I can see that as interpretation, but it is kind of, because it can be, like, the idea of doing the Time Lord Victories thing is a bit sort of self-serious. Like, it's not focusing on the fun parts of Doctor Who, or well, not not to say not fun, the, the sort of more camp parts of Doctor Who is more on the, you know, oh, Doctors fighting Daleks and, oh, you know, the dark times and all that kind of law type stuff but um so yeah i can see but i don't know if that sort of self-parody came across all the time in this i suppose it's the doctors are always the doctors in this book always seem quite light considering everything going on around them and i guess that's probably what you're sort of picking up on because it's i don't know there's it's there's not hugely serious moments they sort of and it's very it's very very quick going from place to place. It doesn't sort of linger on big emotional scenes, and it kind of yeah, as a finale, that kind of feels it's it's, it's more of a sort of um, kind of saga, kind of going round these different bits in the dark times, and obviously there's the stuff with the Daleks and the vampires. But it's quite, I think, sort of the pace of it and the choppiness of it, kind of like you said, it's yeah, it's a it's a strange one, um, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. The for the three doctors, the obviously the, the different stories that have led us here. So the eighth Doctor storyline picks up after the big finish adventure, The Enemy of My Enemy, which sees the the eighth doctor in an uneasy alliance with the Daleks, having travelled back to the dark times to investigate the reasons behind the sort of changing timelines. And the ninth doctor's teamed up with the vampires, which comes at the end of the Doctor Who magazine comic strip Monstrous Beauty. Um, and as we saw in the previous book, the 10th Doctor is uh, taken charge as the Admiral of this uh, mercenary fleet. 
Um, but here they're all just so uncomfortable and completely not in control of their various allies and fleets and things. So there's this huge space battle going on and they're just kind of bumbling around and then they have this sort of the telepathic contact but and, and sort of resolve to, to try and sort things out a little bit. But even by the time that they kind of go back to their corporeal forms, um, it's all kicked off even more, hasn't it? And um, all these ships are blowing up around them. And I think, yeah, that probably the lightness of the tone comes from, like, one, the Tenth Doctor has just committed genocide against the Katura, um, and they're now they're responsible for, uh, for all these deaths, these mercenary ships that are blowing up. They're all, um, you know, they're not, they're not Daleks or vampires. They are just people who are <laughs> just humans or, uh, or ordinary people who are just, just working in this fleet. But they're, they're kind of unconcerned about all of that, aren't they? They're not, they're not really feeling it i think yeah that is a point about it that it's just i think maybe this is where it would work better if, if the 10th doctor was had gone more off the deep end in terms of evilness but then you could get away with the eighth and ninths being more um not lighthearted, but sort of their kind of satirizing the time world there's a bit um, quite near the end, I think, where it's the eighth Doctor talking to Doctor, and he's like, "Oh, and apparently, I'm the Time Lord Victorious." You know, in a sort of he doesn't, I suppose, for the eighth Doctor especially, he doesn't get where that title comes from because he's not. It, partly that title is based on the idea of being the last Time Lord, which the eighth mm. Doctor, as it keeps coming up in this book, isn't you know aware of that being his future. Um, and I think that's it. If the tenth Doctor had have been more serious and that sort of more threatening, then it would have made the eighth and the ninth doctor seem a sort of contrast, but when they're all kind of bumbling around and kind of not in much control, as you say, it does lead to some a sort of strange lack of um, forward direction for them, I think, at points. My frame of reference for Time Lords Victorious, when this whole Megillo was announced, is the last 20 minutes of The Waters of Mars, which is now a ten-and-a-half-year-old, actually more than that, TV serial, and in the last 20 minutes of that, it becomes very, very self-important. And there's dark tragedy, and the main guest star kills herself. And uh, the Tenth Doctor, for the last 20 minutes of that story, becomes the big bad. So that was my only frame of reference for Time Lord Victorious. And in this book, you have similarly dark things going on, but it's written in such a jokey and lighthearted way that I experienced tone whiplash. And that's why I'm curious to hear from the two of you because you guys have been consuming the rest of the product <clears throat> and it just seems to me that this particular tone is very atypical for the rest of the <clears throat> pardon me time lord victorious series yeah i don't think there is a consistent tone across it but i think for the most part the individual ranges have their tone so you know defender for daleks has one tone and monstrous beauty has one tone so maybe what throws what throws us more here is the fact that it's the two books mm-hmm. a kind of a different angle on the same idea and i think yeah i suppose it's actually by not having the tenth doctor you know as we've said the tenth doctor kind of becomes immediately quite uncomfortable with the situation and just sort of trying to deal with, with it or whatever it, it then becomes a much more generic story of facing against daleks as the enemies which is kind of not what the idea of you know two doctors show up to stop the other Doctor really promises at the end of that last book because it kind of comes down to eight for ninth Doctor immediately being like, oh, well, the tenth Doctor's already done it. We can't stop him. And then it just turns into, you know, it effectively becomes a story, again, about 
um, three doctors saving Gallifrey from the Daleks, which is not what I was expecting it to be, really, um, at all. Yeah, I felt like the story was going to be, they like, say, the, the other two doctors versus the tenth doctor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a great the, the, premise. It's it's an amazing premise because you have hmm. a doctor who's become so evil that the only forces that can stop this evil doctor are the Daleks and the great vampires. That's a tremendous setup, and it doesn't really pay off except for the pivot at the end as to who the big bad really has been all along. Yeah, so actually just for your context, Jason, the, the first book, the Steve Cole one, is set immediately after The Waters of Mars. So the events of that um, for the first couple of chapters, uh, the Doctor keeps having flashbacks to and, and memories of. Um, so that is the, the kind of the starting point for the 10th Doctor, for his um, sort of strand through this, uh, is The Waters of Mars. And that story's on the, the DVD set, I think, The Journey to the Dark Times, is it called? Um, Something like that. <laughs> yeah, as the, as the starting point for, for his incarnation going through it. Yeah. Um, I suppose maybe there is an interest taking. So, obviously, the, the, the 10th Doctor in The Waters of Mars, you know, claims this title of Time Lord Victorious and is like, I'm going to do all this. You know, he, he suddenly becomes sort of overwrought with this with sense of his own power. And then almost immediately afterwards, the thing happens where Adelaide kills herself. I and mean, then he's like realizes he's gone too far and so maybe there is a sense of the same thing here where again it's you know he gets a big sort of heated moment and goes i'm gonna put on these time lord robes i'm gonna be the time Lord victorious and no one's gonna stop me and then again about 30 seconds later is like oh that was a bad move wasn't it um <laughs> and i guess so in that sense it is still is sort of keeping with the character um and yet i think people because the whole range is sold on being called Time Lord Victorious. I never, again, it's that thing, like you said, with the Big Finish War Doctor thing, where I never really feel like the Time Lord Victorious is that different to just the Doctor on any other day, um, which is a shame. Um, it's, it's quite uh, fitting with the late 10th Doctor, the bit where, so still on that kind of space battle at the start, when it turns against him, because he loses all the ships in his fleet apart from, apart from the flagship, doesn't he? Uh, and there's a point where he thinks to himself that it's so unfair, which is like a, an echo of his final scenes just before regeneration, isn't it? When he has those, uh, the, you know, the kind of self-pitying, whiny sort of uh, uh, kind of thing before he has to save Wilf about how unfair it all is. Um, so he is sort of not as heroic towards the end of his incarnation as he has been earlier on. Um, once, uh, so having destroyed Mordila and then escaped from his other two incarnations at the end of chapter three, there's a bit of a time gap here between chapters three and four, uh, which is actually where some of the other Time Lord Victorious stories are set. So the Minds of Magnus, which is an audio adventure um, performed by Jacob Dudman, which came out on vinyl a few weeks ago um, and was on the podcast a few weeks ago. Uh, that we talked about it, is set uh, in that time. And apparently there's also a short story called Mission to the Known, which obviously a play on Mission to the Unknown uh, from the Dark Master Plan is set in this gap. But I, I haven't come across that one yet. Have you, Bryn? No, that's um, um, mainly due to, to budget reasons. I've, that's one of the short stories that comes with the like the figurines from e Eagle Moss. Right. And uh... right at the start of... I said I was going to review everything. I mean, I said 
but here are the exceptions because I'm not made of money. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I do know that one of the, the other few people who has been reviewing all of Time with Victorious is um, John Selway for Tides of Time. I do know that he has looked at those short stories, so you might be able to find that on the internet if people are interested to hear what those are like. But, um, yeah, I, I believe they're quite short, like very short, little sort of filler things, so mm. I won't be able to... I don't think they'd contribute that much or that you'd lose that much by not having them. Um, I got to make sure I heard this correctly. The only way you can get this short story is by buying figurines. Yes. So the, um, the, um, the, the Eagle Moss figurine releases all feature, um, little short stories about what the Daleks are getting up to. And I think, the final figurine release, which hasn't come out yet, also has something about Brian Viewed, I believe. Um, yeah, that's a that is a, a thing. Um. It's not a thing because I live in the U.S. and I can tell you categorically, I could go to Forbidden Planet, which is uh, the big comic store in Manhattan, every week from here until the end of time. Uh, pardon the pun, the end of time, part two. <laughs> I can guarantee you I will never see these figurines on sale. And then I would have to go to Amazon.co.uk and place an international order to get these figurines for a five-page short story. No, 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 no. Less than five pages. Heavens to Betsy. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't think... To be fair, I don't think I've ever seen Eagle Moss stocked in actual shops. It, it, it may be in, in bigger cities or in bigger forbidden plants where I've always... Um, but I'm aware that they have stuff directly from the website. But yeah, like you say, I don't know how the accessibility for the US. And again, that's a similar thing. The immersive theatre thing that's maybe happening at some point, depending on um, coronavirus stuff. Um, like, again, that is a big thing where obviously not accessible to people outside the UK and obviously not accessible to people like me who don't have the biggest budget in the world. And yeah. Um, and they realise there's a global pandemic on and here in the states we're having a debate as to whether or not a family of four can survive for the next 12 months on a single $600 federal payment if I were to tell US Senator Mitch McConnell that I was going to take a portion of my $600 stimulus and spend it on figurines and a less than five page short story I'd probably wind up in a federal prison or on the front page of the New York Post or name Rupert Murdoch tabloid of choice here That's a, I'm sorry this is bonkers <laughs> yeah, I the budget concern has come up a few times with Time Lord Victoria stuff, and I guess that will always be the case with Doctor Who merchandise of any kind. But I suppose because of a sort of compacted release schedule, where it's like effectively three months worth of pretty chocker content, I can mm. see why that's perhaps more of a concern than usual. Particularly if people do want to consume all of it, which I have broadly done with a few exceptions. But yeah. Yeah, the marketing department needs to have their heads examined. <coughs> Pardon me. <laughs> I do wonder if there's going to be some kind of future release for this stuff where, um, you know, you maybe be able to get some kind of box set that has, uh, you know, all the bits together. So some CDs with the big finish on, maybe a DVD with the Dalek animated series and then mm. a disc of PDFs of the, the short stories, the books, the, uh, the comics and things. Yeah. Uh, and whether that will be kind of more affordable... Yeah, um, I mean, that would be nice. And yeah, I think because it's so many different licensees involved, I'm not sure how easy that would be logistically. Yeah. Um, and even just 
there's even just the question then of what order you put stuff in, like, because um, there is a sort of timeline order, but it's not, there's, it's like we were saying about Minds of Magnus comes halfway through or after the, the first three chapters of this book, and then there's the final page of Monstrous Beauty is set after this book, um, the DWM comic. Yeah, there's um, two panels, isn't there? So between two yeah. panels, um, Rose goes to sleep. And then Rose wakes up on the next panel, um, and the the ninth Doctor's all kind of beaten up, and his clothes are torn and bruised. Um, and so while she's been asleep, he's had the entire adventure of this book, which is a, again another thing where it's like, especially because obviously the original, like when Time Lord Victorious was first announced, there was that great piece of Lee binding artwork which had Rose on it, which made you think Rose was going to be a more substantial part of it. And then of course, well, where is she in the main book? Oh, she's sleeping. Yeah. Um, which is, she's like Nissa in, uh, in, um, Kinder. In Kinder, isn't she? Yeah. Um, Delta wave aug mentor. But I, yeah. I was not even talking about alienating the casual viewer on purpose and going, ha ha. I was not even cognizant reading this thing. And we're talking about all flesh is grass here. That's a pretty horrible title. I was not even cognizant that there was a time gap between chapters 3 and 4. You figure the editors could have pulled a target from back in the 1970s with a footnote. Uh, See, the previous adventure in Doctor (coughs) Who and the Sea Devils, or Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters answered these questions. It would have been nice for the book to signpost what else I needed to read. If I need Mm. to put the book down after chapter 3, buy an audio, (laughs) send away for for figurines, wait 16 (laughs) weeks for them to arrive, that would have been nice, but... I wasn't even aware that I was missing all this in between chapters three and four. I just assumed that it all took place on the same day. <laughs> wow. There, there is a line at the beginning of, of chapter four that says something like, uh, several weeks later when they arrive on, on the planet in, in Tranxis, is it, I think? And um, they say, oh, they've, uh, they've had some adventures and looked for some answers, uh, which is reference they, they go to this planet where the minds of Magnox live to, to find their answers. Uh, but yeah, that, that would have been uh, definitely a way of doing it. The books, because there is the uh, the sort of the timeline which um, you see on Twitter and things, which shows you the order of each thing, um, which you might have expected to be in the books. Um, but I think the only piece of merchandise I've seen it on is the Minds of Magnox vinyl. It's on the the inner sleeve when you pull the vinyl out. Um, uh, right. It's yeah, got I mean, a kind of map um, onto that, which is which is nice. It's a nice handy way of having it. Yeah. I mean, I, I got the CD copy of Minds of Magnox, and I, I don't think even that includes it. So if it really is only on um, the vinyl, that is quite a yeah. interesting <laughs> one. Um, I mean, I, I Minds of Magnox is actually one of a couple of bits that I haven't experienced yet just because, um, obviously, CD copy um, was, was delayed quite a lot in the post. And unlike sort of Big Finish, where you can just listen to, to the downloads, you know, it's... Um, the download was a separate purchase, so I think Minds of Magnox probably arrived sometime after after Christmas and between um, New Year's, and it's just, I should say, it's just the start of January now. I don't know when this is going out, but yeah, I have not listened to that yet, so it'd be interesting to see how well it sort of fits into that gap, but yeah. I had read the Time Lord Victorious article on Wikipedia last night in preparation for this recording, and that has a really complicated grid showing in what order each of the Time Lord Victorious bits of merchandise take place for each of the main doctors. And mm-hmm. all the doctors are experiencing these events out of order to one another. So it's possible to read through this whole thing three times in the 8th Doctor order, and then the ninth Doctor order, and then the 10th Doctor order. 
and it's going to be three entirely different stories because it's it, it's all non-continuous uh, compared mm-hmm. to one another. And Mark, you had made a good point about that line at the beginning of chapter four about the several weeks later, which I guess I must have missed. But let's double back to chapter three. There's a couple of lines of dialogue here. Sorry, a couple of lines of prose here that are just atrocious. And (laughs) the vampire helped the ninth doctor to his feet. All around them was the tang of bonfires and a hint of barbecue. Again, this is complete self-parody. Uh, and you have to wonder how this fits in with with the rest of the series. And then, that was page 41 on the Kindle edition. Page 44, there's a reference to hipsters. Now, hipsters is a very 21st century urban slang term. I live in Brooklyn, which is hipster central. We've got, we all have our favorite hipster jokes here. I wouldn't expect the word hipster to be relevant to a book taking place in the dark times, evil since the dawn of time. It was tonally a very odd choice and maybe I was so hung up on the tone that I missed the fact that they were signposting this big several week time gap in which I'm supposed to go out and buy figurines <laughs> but that maybe says more about me than about the people who put this together I don't, I don't remember the line about hipsters who, who is one no. of the doctors that says that I will do another live interpretive reading because that's what you're all here <laughs> for the sound of my voice uh, where are we the doctor threw himself to the floor and started tearing strips from the embroidered Time Lord collar, pulling the filigree wire tracing out of it and jabbing it into the ruins of his sonic screwdriver. First, I'm going to patch this up, he said, rewiring the circuits. Then he wrapped a couple of the metallic strips around the body of the screwdriver and held it aloft, looking at the overlapping bronze patterns of cogs. Bit of a botched job, but it has a certain hipster charm. What? <laughs> I guess I mean I can see that in the voice of the tenth Doctor. Um, it is a, um, I, it does feel of a strange moment his patching up the Sonic with the cloak because it does seem like it's there for the um, the nice picture, the, the sort of pretty picture thing that they released of the Time Lord Victorious Sonic Screwdriver that they then put in like I think a video game or something. It's like they put that Sonic Screwdriver design in, so it does. It's an odd moment because it does seem there just so that you can have a new Sonic Screwdriver design, but then it's not even like that is a merchandise thing. It's just sort of a picture that was posted online, and like I say, apparently it features in... I forget, is it the VR game? I, I can't remember the name of it, but they added some Time World Victoria stuff to that, apparently. Um, yeah. Yeah, that rings a bell. It's really, it makes sense that the Doctor's saying that, because the Doctor does make mm. uh, modern-day cultural references wherever he is, doesn't he? Um, you know, he'll drop in sort of references, especially the 10th Doctor, he'll talk about sort of like EastEnders or something when he's on the, um, the, the Satan Pit planet and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I don't think it's out of place in terms of his voice, but then, yeah, I still can kind of see how, because it's a, an odd moment where the 10th stops to fix the Sonic Screwdriver just sort of for that reason, really, to have another, you know, Time Lord Victoria C type thing. But... Um, mm. So I can see how it would draw your attention in that sense of like, well, this moment seems like a bit unnecessary. The very next line after that, by the way, is the ooh talking about Mr. Ball. And it took mm-hmm. me far too long to realize that Mr. Ball is the globe that he holds in his hand. Uh, did Brian the ooh really have Mr. Ball on the rest of the series, or is that another McCormack joke? 
No, that, that is a big part of Brian Viewed's character, but he's kind of got this sort of split personality thing that he um he, he listened like it's almost like the ball is the one telling him what to do is how he acts like and it's mm-hmm. like a the ball is like sensible and knows what's going on. It's a um yeah. Yeah, it, it it probably isn't described well enough here for somebody coming to it new, but the um in He Kills Me, He Kills Me Not, uh which is the eighth Doctor audio where the eighth doctor meets Brian to begin with, um that's that's kind of it's played played quite humorously in that. Um mm. Brian is is one of I think the best things to come out of Time Lord Victorious. Yeah. Um a lot of the the humour comes out from him and he's just so obeying all the time and um but yeah he's got the um he's got the the the, the globe thing which is the translator that you'd have his his he's almost like separate consciousness that talks to him the minds of magnox audio that we mentioned before is the story where you get brian's backstory um and more about mr ball which uh, is uh, and he, uh, I don't want to spoil anything for it, but yeah, more of the nature of, of his relationship with with Mr. Ball uh, is revealed, right. and uh, it's yeah. um, that that's quite an interesting one from his point of view. Yeah, I, I look forward to that then. Calling it Mr. Ball in the middle of a very serious epic space battle. I mean, <laughs> imagine if in the movie The Godfather, Marlon Brando is giving this long somber speech, and then pauses to refer to his gun as Mr. Shooty. It, it, it doesn't. It doesn't fit. Yeah, I, I guess we've got used to it, and then yeah. but if that's the first time you're seeing it, and it's in the middle of that sort of, it, it must be a bit of a. I can see yeah. how that through <laughs> you, yeah. Because um, I suppose that's another thing as well. Where the fact that Brian Reed's character is quite humorous while also quite deadly again is kind of it adds to that tone that you're sort of commenting on and that the story never seems to be taking itself that seriously and um yeah well he's fine finding all these dark times ancient weapons um he's he's, he's doing it very casually as well isn't he and just describing what he's going to do and um he's, he's he's just calm throughout the whole thing um, just, just always. I think we we said when we um, reviewed the the big finish audio with him in. Um, it, it's almost like having like a psychotic three <laughs> PO. So he's, he's always unfailingly polite and calm, but is is yeah. an assassin um, and, uh, yeah. and quite kind of. I, 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 do, I do, as well. do you think it's a shame that most of his appearance is sort of outside of the big finish thing? Because having Silas Carson performing it in the one big finish audio he's in does add add to it i think um you know getting to hear the youth yeah. voice doing these sort of murderous lines when it's such a calm and sort of um plaintive voice um but obviously you, you can still get that in your head you know we're all familiar with how a new sort of sounds mm. but. i like the character don't get me wrong yeah, i, I like help. the way that he acts throughout the book and i like the fact that he is utterly amoral and i, I like the character and picturing the Ood voice from the TV series helped me out tremendously. It's just the Mr. Ball joke. It took me way too long to realize that was a silly gag rather than an actual person who happened to be named Ball. Right, yeah. Right, <laughs> that there was another character there called Mr. Ball, yeah. Because he's holding a ball. Uh, uh, again, it's a strange concept to the novice reader. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is always a question I've had with almost every Time Lord Victoria's part of like how much of this is accessible to people who aren't 
you know, haven't been doing all of it. And I think that you do get a bit of that just from doing things out of order as well. Well, I mean, even even trying, even me who's had stuff as it's come out, still the order I've listened to or read it in hasn't always been exactly release order. It's like um, this book came out the day before the last um, Paul McGann Big Finish audio, the Mutually Assured Destruction. And Mutually Assured Destruction is set after this book and, and was released after this book. But you're not unless you're going to read the whole of this book in a day, then I think it's a bit, you know, you're quite... So I ended up listening to that before I'd read this book. And, you know, I, I knew what was going on. I knew that it was set after. And, yeah, there's still a bit of, like, then when you go back and read the next thing that's actually the previous thing, you're like, oh, hang on a minute, I'm in this bit of it now. And it's it's an interesting experience at times. Yeah, I had the same thing. Yeah, I'd listened to the audio before I'd finished this book. Um, because that's uh, the, the Eighth Doctor storyline, and this ends with him running back onto the Dalek ship and uh, which is TARDIS he's hooked up to and taking it back to the or the present for the Daleks or the kind of modern times um, and then yeah that audio picks up from there doesn't it it's um, it's kind of like mm. die hard on a on a Dalek ship <laughs> yeah so the I suppose the one interesting thing here is the difference between the ninth doctor and the eighth doctor and the way they tackle um, what's going on with the Tenth Doctor? The Ninth Doctor is is much more proactive. Um, he's very much like uh, he's got kind of two goals, hasn't he? Which is to find a new home for the the free undead, um, so the the people who were kind of slaves to the great vampires, to find them a new planet to settle on, but then also to try and save the remaining Keturah as well, to to sort of, to sort of find them, um, see if there's any still remaining out there. Uh, and it reminded me of the the sort of the cliffhanger to. Is it, it's Bad Wolf, isn't it? His penultimate story. Oh, the big sort of speech where he's like, "I'm gonna do," you know, such a, like it's it's very yeah, I'm like coming to save you, very and, confident and has yeah, a plan. He's like that. Yeah. He's like, right, I'm gonna go and find the the rest of the Katoa. We're gonna do this, and the Eighth Doctor is more maybe thinks he can he can influence things by staying close to the Tenth Doctor. Um, and, and just mm. kind of trying to influence him that way. But, I mean, but also he hasn't got his TARDIS because yeah. it's um, it's plugged into the Dalek ship, so he he doesn't have the freedom <laughs> yeah. that the Ninth Doctor's got as well. Yeah, I think part of it as well is that the Ninth Doctor has sort of like act like um, Madame. I think it's Akala, the the vampire. Mm. You know, he has actual allies that are kind of properly on his side. Like yes, there's a bit of the fact that she's a vampire, but obviously. The Eighth Doctor and the Daleks' relationship is is very antagonistic, so it's not like they can properly work together. And then the Eighth Doctor ends up with the Tenth Doctor, so at that point he can't really be working against him either. Whereas um, Madame McCalla almost becomes like a companion to the Ninth Doctor for the story. So for the Ninth Doctor, he's still kind of got a sort of substitute companion. He's still got his TARDIS, whereas the Eighth Doctor struggles to be that active because he's not really got the sort of normal things you, that you expect a Doctor to have to do the things that the Doctor does. And it's interesting to see, we get to see the Ninth Doctor with another companion, which, you know, we never have really, because he's, uh, he's got kind of mm. Rose and very briefly Jack. Um, so it's good to see him, the way he plays off um, another companion. And she's a really interesting character as well. Um, and the bit where he has to give her some blood to sustain her as well. Yeah. I mean, it's nice that they have this sort of... Um, like it, it, it feels like they've got a bit of a history. Like once he's coming to like get her, it's like established that like 
they've got this relationship. And yeah, I it's strange for from what I could tell from reading Monstrous Beauty, that's not like a thing in there. Like it, it's because obviously they have this close relationship with that book. I feel like it would have been more interesting if we had have actually seen Men of McCullough in the Ninth Doctor's sort of separate part of the Time of Victoria's narrative where he's dealing with these mm. vampires in the dark times, but she would have been part of that. So you could introduce, but like in the same way, kind of like that Brian was, you know, in several other bits before being yeah. here. Um, but even then, you know, the, the relationship still worked and it was, you know, an interesting idea to have the, the sort of vampire characters, you know, being more kind of, you know, for, I don't know too much about the vampires in Doctor Who. I've not actually seen State of Decay because I'm, I'm, I'm some way through classic Doctor Who and I've seen lots of pieces, uh, you know, as well as how I'm going through it linearly. But that's one I've just not seen, so I'm not 100% on how it works. And I did get a bit confused at that at times with this book and with the Monstrous Beauty comic series when there's a lot of words being thrown about. Um, but I think I think a lot yeah, of that is um, new here. Um, the the idea mm-hmm. of the bloodsman it isn't in um, State of Decay, so the uh, yeah. the sort of vampire foot soldiers who can apparate around and things like that that doesn't come from there. The the great vampire which the the Daleks have captured to experiment on that is probably the main thing that's in State of Decay, but in State right. of Decay you yeah. only see its hand. <laughs> right. <laughs> You yeah. are in for a real treat with State of Decay. It's one of my favorite classic series stories. But that takes place at the very end of the Great Vampire timeline. Mm. And mm. the Doctor only finds out about it by reading history texts towards the end of the story. And he realizes that he's, mild spoiler alert, come across the very last survivor of the Great Vampire species. What you don't see in State of Decay, because 1980, minuscule budget, mm. you do not see hordes of great vampires swarming around and causing mass destruction. You're yes. seeing at the very, very, very end of their influence. And to be fair, yeah. you don't see great vampires in swarms causing mass destruction in this story either. You only get their acolytes. And there's one great vampire seen briefly in a subservient position. But if you're looking for the great epic story of the Time Lords versus the Great Vampires, you don't see it in State of Decay, and you don't mm. see it here either. There is a bit of that in Monstrous Beauty where, because that does feature, well, they're not Time Lords at this point, but it features, I think at one point they actually refer to themselves as Space Lords, yeah. which I wasn't <laughs> particularly keen on, although I suppose it makes sense that they're not Time Lords yet, but it features the, the pre-Time Lord Gallifreyans fighting against... Um, I think it's supposed to be quite early in that conflict because there's a reference in the third bit of Monstrous Beauty to the um, bow ships being like new technology mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but but yeah, there is a b- bit of that more direct conflict there. But I was also a bit disappointed with Monstrous Beauty in terms of like, oh, it brings in like an early Rassilon but then doesn't do a huge amount with them really. But um, yeah, I generally find that comics go too quickly for me to get much out of them um, which is um i suppose just a feature of the medium and people who like that medium i'm sure are used to the sort of pacing in them but i always find as soon as i've picked it up i'm putting it down again and i'm like oh what happened there um yeah it sort of sets up that the that the time lords aren't and who are used to them being um so there's this kind of no help uh from that uh from that quarter for the for the doctors isn't it um that they that they are just 
busily tied up with this war, but they they don't have time travel technology or anything yet. It's um, it's before they've they've got the power of regeneration from the timeless child. Um, the 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 main sort of plot, I guess, in this one becomes about the Daleks uh, collecting specimens. So they're they're collecting all these species from the dark times um, who aren't still around in the. It's not really the present, I guess, but the uh, the <laughs> the post time war times uh, that they're from, uh, because it's about sort of genetic manipulation and things like that, which did remind me a bit of the timeless children in terms of the the cyber lords, uh, where you've got the the undying cybermen because they've been augmented with with time lord regeneration power. Here you've got Daleks, a new symbiont breed of Daleks, uh, which. Are undead because they've uh, they've absorbed the um, the DNA of the great vampire, so they they can't be killed. So it's uh, it's a similar sort of idea, isn't it, of taking that existing threat and um, and making them more unstoppable. That was where the book really started to work for me. That was uh, the point in the book where I started paying more attention because I really liked that concept. Then it flips the story from the tenth Doctor has gone rogue to the Daleks are really the big bad the whole time. So, those of you who don't know me and have only heard the first 40 minutes of this recording probably feel that I thought this book was the mutant love child of the twin dilemma and the Lazarus experiment, (laughs) or insert your worst episodes ever here. This is where the book really started to work for me, and this is where I became a fan of the book, so to speak, because I really liked that idea of the Daleks going back in time and using it to their advantage, starting with the experimentation on the great vampire. So from here on in, I promise, it will only be positive, <laughs> mostly. Uh, yeah, I mean, there is that, yeah, like I've said before, I was kind of disappointed that it became a story just about oh, the Doctors going against the Daleks, but it did have an interesting angle on the Daleks, at least. Um, you know, not just the fact that we've got these sort of Daleks with a bit more personality that have been throughout Time Lord Victorious, but also the um, fact that, yeah, they, they're like, what, what what's in the dark times that we can use to our advantage, all these other species, and then you get this, like you say, the hybrid Dalek between Daleks and vampires, and yeah. It's a shame we don't have an image of those anywhere. I feel like the way they're described about having the, the Dalek uh, kind of skirt um, or, or bottom section, but then being this red mass of tentacles and claws around one big eye, um, but with a, is it a band of Dalek animus, I think, sort of protecting its heart. Mm-hmm. Um, they sound really cool. I, I kind of wish they'd been on the cover or something. Yeah, it does seem like a missed opportunity. I suppose there's an argument maybe putting them on the cover would be a bit of a spoiler because, like, it's quite um, late on in the book that that happens. It's, like, maybe around the two-thirds mark or mm-hmm. something. But, um, but yeah, it, it would be nice to have seen them somewhere. But, yeah, I can see why they wouldn't be on the cover necessarily. Um yeah, picture them like a kind of a beefed up Dalek Khan from Journey's End, where you've got this kind of split open casing and the uh, the mutant inside. Yeah. And of course, it's kind of that sort of nice moment where the, the, the Katuru, the one remaining Katuru, becomes sort of vital to disposing of that, which kind of leaves the 10th Doctor in a situation where he's like, well, I've actually succeeded. You know, the, the, I think that's one of the things that surprised me that it wasn't. That whatever the temple, the Katira was in some way like reversed or negated or something that survived it is no, he fully succeeded, and yet, you know, he has to also deal with the fact that it was one of the Katira that sort of 
you know, saved him and saved, you know, Gall- Gallifrey at the end, really. Um, albeit, like, maybe perhaps a bit unintentionally because she's just sort of dealing with the one of these symbionts that's come for her and isn't necessarily aware of what's going on, you know, elsewhere, mm-hmm. but I'm not quite sure exactly how much they knew of what they were doing. The Kutu, I think, is, is she called in- Inyit or something? Um, yes. uh, yeah, yeah, Inyit, yeah. Yeah, so just the way their sort of power works is if they if they put the judgment on one of a race, um, it it happens to every member of the race. Yeah. Uh, so with with Gallifrey under threat, uh, the because the the this Dalek Time Squad get a, a recorded message from the Golden Emperor, um, kind of a bit of a cameo from the from the animated series. Um, seems like a good place if we have our special guest reading. Uh, so this is by Ross from the excellent Gallifrey's Most Wanted podcast. The orange planet sat at the heart of Kesterberus. In their own savage way, its people were ambitious but relatively quiet. They had not troubled the ancient life forms. The Jagareth had come and gone without visiting. The Araxans had not enlisted them in their doom fight to ward off the Kodareth. The Daemons had not even bothered trying to advance the species. The Osirans knew of the planet, but didn't use it as ammunition in the war between their 740 gods. The inhabitants had only started to master space and had encountered a species that they would be fighting a war against for a long time. Other than that, they were, by the standards of the times, peaceful. As Adana glided majestically into orbit around Gallifrey, the tenth doctor imagined a child walking on the silver shores of the lake. If she looked up and listened really hard, would she hear the wheezing groaning sound of the ship? Would she remember that noise? Would she wonder at it, daring to imagine what her people would one day become? Who knows, he muttered. Dressed up again, said the eighth doctor. Yes, the tenth doctor looked down at his scuffed and battered robes. Last time I wore these, I was champion of the universe. He pulled a face. Now I'm saving my home. They suit you better this time, said the Eighth Doctor. Yeah, the Tenth Doctor conceded, grateful the collar no longer itched so much. The Ninth Doctor strolled into the flight deck and was about to say something and saw the planet on the screen. He stared at it, shaken. Thank you very much, Ross, for that. I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can find the Gallifrey's Most Wanted podcast and also their Twitter account. So this is the kind of one last stand that they uh, that, that it all comes down to. Um, the Doctors have got to protect Gallifrey from the Daleks. They've got only got one ship left. Um, and kind of unbeknownst to them at this point, they, the Daleks have got the symbiont Daleks that, that can't die as well. The fact that, as I was kind of... J- j- the thing I was kind of saying about the it being the Keturah does that, again, it feels like the Doctors don't achieve that much them, themselves in this. And like, yes, it's... Is it, it was insurmountable that they hadn't have overcome, but I think because in, in a lot of the book it feels like they're not always doing that much or that they're kind of just bumbling from, from post to post. The fact that, again, here at the climax, it's kind of down to um, someone else to resolve it, and it um, kind of adds to that feeling, I think. But um, it is it is quite a dramatic climax, you know, there's the, the, oh, what weapons have we got left in this one weapon that they do use that does something but then I think the image where it's the idea that it's destroyed a load of these Daleks but then because it's the symbionts that they're sort of still going despite having been kind of obliterated these whatever the sort of physical creature bit of it is is kind of coming together and still going at that was quite a nice 
it, and it, it made the symbionts more than just, you know, a bunch of Daleks flying at the ship sort of thing. And I was going to say, it reminded me of what the Sacha Dewan Master does with the Time Lords Cybermen hybrids at the end of the Timeless Children. You have this race of robots slash cyborgs which cannot be killed because they have supernatural, in other words, regenerative or undead powers. So I thought it was interesting how the two stories... Timeless Children and All Flesh is Grass kind of mirror one another, but they each handle it in a different way so that you don't feel you're reading the same story twice. So that was another aspect of this book that I really appreciated. Yeah, and I can't help but wonder sort of at the point this book was being written when that was in relation to the transmission of... um Series 12, I mean, I suppose probably never know unless, you know, someone goes and asks Ina McCormack, but I suppose it is possible that it was either being written sort of just after or maybe before or sort of concurrently, like it was already the idea, but then... Um, but yeah, I think that's interesting to think about in that regard. And Una McCormack was busy writing the Star Trek Picard novel earlier in the year. You have to figure she wrote this one on fairly short notice and fairly late in the day, because her Picard novel, which only came out about six months ago, is much longer and more detailed. So you have to figure that she would have already seen Timeless Children when she sat down to write this. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose my other thing as well is, with a lot of the Time Lord Victoria stuff, wondering how much of it is the story they've been given by James Goss, and how much of it is like what they've come up with as they're writing it. Um, but yeah... Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I could see that the symbiont element would just be a, well, we've got, because we, obviously she's been told she's got to include Daleks and vampires and that sort of scenario. And then a sort of thinking of, well, if I've got these elements, let's, you know, put them together, basically. Um, yeah, it sort of suggests itself a bit, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, and Cardiff um, have got kind of approval over all this spin-off stuff, haven't they? Um, so I guess as long, yeah. you know, as, long as they're, they're not treading on the toes or contradicting the... The, the sort of the new history of Gallifrey in terms of the um, the other timeless children and then regeneration and time travel kind of um, uh, appearing in that order. I think the biggest mm. surprise for me of this book is that the Doctor's actions aren't undone. The, he has wiped out the Katura. Yeah. Um, given that um, the... Uh, I know you're reading the Kindle edition, Jason... Um, the back of the dust cover of the the physical copy says even a time lord can't change the past, <laughs> which which to me made <laughs> you think well obviously it's all going to be undone, um, because the uh, the earlier parts of Time Lord Victorious the, the the Doctor and the Daleks separately are noticing that time has changed, time's been rewritten and some races that should be there are no longer there and other races have risen to prominence where they previously hadn't. There's planets that were inhabited have just become kind of dust balls. Uh, but then, mm. and, that, and all that just sticks at the end of it. It's, um, it is done. Yeah, you're right. And I think perhaps most surprisingly as well, in Defender of the Daleks, there's a bit about the fact that, like, the Daleks aren't aware that the Time War has happened or something. And it, like, it almost suggested that that had been changed. And I guess maybe the idea wherever was that just that these Daleks had somehow... Like, that the Dalek time's got to come from the wrong... T- it's very... Um, yeah, I, I was in the same boat of assuming right from when the premise was announced long before any of these 
you know, books were physically here, but it would be changed back and that would be... But, yeah, I'm left feeling a little bit confused about how it all works, to be honest, which isn't necessarily the sort of satisfying feeling you want when you're coming to the end of a big sort of multimedia event. Um, Not only that, but the history changing is portrayed as a good thing, and I got the sense that the last of the Keturah, Inyit, was almost thanking the Doctor for what he had done, and everyone walks away happy. So it's not just history changing, but it's history changing portrayed as a positive force for good. So all the stuff about the Tenth Doctor going evil in the beginning actually has mm. a positive result. Yeah, there's a question of whether the book doesn't... I'm not 100% sure whether the book knows whether it thinks that the Tenth Doctor getting rid of the Katuru was a, a good or a bad thing, which I suppose is an interesting idea itself in terms of the idea that there's some nuance of like whether it's a good or a bad thing and yet the idea I, again from the premise it seemed like okay so the doctor commits genocide and that's supposed to be a bad thing clearly and yet this like you say this book seems to suggest that it has positive consequences and kind of results in the doctor who universe we have in the future obviously that's why the Katuru aren't are just thought of as like a sort of myth or a legend because they're not around because of this but then also there's the suggestion that whatever he did with this changed the future so that wasn't always the case which is kind of it's all very I don't think I quite get it as someone who's experienced like I say like 90% of it and that's that's not a great sign I don't think yeah I felt Um, exactly the same because I don't really understand because the in the first book it's like uh, basically all species just live forever barring accidents until the couture arrive on your planet and then each species, even down to the grass or the uh, you know like fungus, is is judged by them as to how long it's going to live. Um, but then it says, well, life will just sort itself out now and and determine its own <laughs> lifespan. But you think, well, why didn't it do that in the first place? And, and how is that just going to work itself yeah. out now? And like at one point, I was thinking it might end up because obviously you've got this idea that Inya as a Katuru kind of is annoyed at the other Katuru that she's seen do, like, just wipe out this first planet in effect by just going too overzealous with her powers. So I wondered if we were going to be left with the position that Inyit was actually the only remaining Katuru and that she was more sort of sensible and that she, so that she would be doling out, you know, these lifespans in a more kind of fair way and that possibly that she would be the Katuru that we see in the short trip um, Lesser Evils. And then, obviously, that's not the case because because she dies, and at that point, yeah, it I I don't I don't know whether I'm missing something, or perhaps more likely, it just doesn't quite work, or it's a bit sort of flubbed. Yeah, because um, I think after I finished it the first time, I kind of read it, and then I thought, oh, that must have been what was meant by the prophecy that when the last of the Couture dies, the gates of death open. That 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 is right. what, when, when I reread it to make some notes, I thought that that doesn't seem to be what it is, um, or it's not explicitly stated anyway. That that the gates yeah. of death opening are what then just uh, you know kind of cascades through the universe, so that every species just sort of sorts itself out in terms of uh, to life. Yeah, and I guess there's now also a question of like. Um, 
Yeah, again, because as soon as you have a story in Doctor Who where it's like, oh, something in the past is causing the present to change, you assume that means the thing in the past is going to resolve and the present will go back to normal. But I suppose this means that the weird stuff that the Doctor and the Daleks were noticing in The Enemy of My Enemy and um, whatever the Brian viewed one was called, the first Mm. one was called, is still that. And then that stories like Lesser Evils, which have the Keturu still around in the present, from a sort of original timeline which no longer happened i think um so again it becomes more confusing because you're like oh a what's the order to watch you know experience these stories in and then b which of these stories still happened and which of them unhappened and yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's a head scratcher i just i'm still just especially confused about defender of the daleks and how it makes a big deal there out of the time war never it, it, it seems to imply or not even imply it pretty much says it. it's like you know the Daleks have no memory of the time war in a way which seems to imply that the time war never happened in whatever timeline these Daleks and the Tenth Doctor in and then that's not a thing that ever really gets acknowledged or brought back again and I yeah I'm not entirely convinced it all um, makes sense I think I was hoping that something in this book would kind of deal with that but I don't know I was going to say the line live forever barring accidents threw me a little bit because going back to 1969 that is a very significant line for Doctor Who continuity it's the way that the Patrick Troughton Doctor describes the Time Lords in the very first story where they're introduced the war games so the very end of the book here says that everybody who lives on the planet Beringi and picks up the gardening for the last of the Keturah will live forever, barring accidents. And because that is such a significant and freighted line, I thought it might have been a reference to these people becoming the new Time Lords, but I may have been reading too much I, into I think, that or mixed, missed context from elsewhere in the series. I think it's a case of missed context because I think it's the idea that prior to the Katuru coming along, like every species lived forever barring accidents, which is something that's explored in The Night Before and the Dead. Um, but then, yeah, like like we've kind of just been saying, it then raises the question of, well, with all the Katuru gone and the Temporal having succeeded, does that not, why is it that that doesn't just remain the case? Which again, I guess maybe links to this Gates of Death thing, but as we've kind of said, isn't the most clear. Um, I don't think it was until I started talking about it doing this podcast and having this conversation that I realised how many things there were in, that were quite inconsistent, and I'm now a bit um, <laughs> like I came, yeah, I came out of this book having enjoyed it while not thinking it was the most substantial thing ever, and that's kind of been my opinion of a, quite a lot of Time Lord Victorious, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, but now I'm kind of just a bit lost in how much of it sort of on the basic level of what it pitched itself as, which is a big multimedia event where everything ties together and is one big story. Does it really work on that level? Now I feel bad for ruining it for you. My apologies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just uh, sitting here throwing darts. Because yeah, there's not that much more to be released. Um, and it, and, and no. as I say, the two books are the kind of the tent poles. I, d- I don't see any of the, the other stuff really resolving anything. Um the no. the other vinyl story's been delayed until February, 
um, because that was getting a, a supermarket release, wasn't it? And they see during the pandemic, yeah. they don't want people rushing into supermarkets. Um, that's the one where they've got David Tennant on one side of the disc and Paul McGann on the other side of the disc. But that doesn't seem like it's a hugely significant story to the whole thing. Uh, s- a supermarket release? Which supermarket? Asda. Asda. Yeah, but we don't have that here in yeah, the yeah. States. Yeah, so again, I... this is... There is a I... download version of it, but yes, it is another one of these yeah. situations where it is quite specific to... Yeah. Well, you can get it if you're in the UK. I mean, Asda's um, owned, uh, Asda I'll... is owned by Walmart. I don't know if they're, um, if they're getting any copies. I have been living in the same country as Walmart for 47 <laughs> years, and I can tell you categorically, I have never once gone to Walmart ever for my doctor who okay. needs. <laughs> I, I think also, generally, Big Finish have done a few supermarket or HMV exclusive vinyl releases, and I think in all those cases, it's only ever been released in the UK, yeah. so I guess it'll be the same situation here, which is a shame, but I am... Um, yeah, I mean, I am looking forward to that vinyl, but like you, I don't expect it to add anything great to the sort of overarching story. I'm just looking forward to it because it's got David Tennant and Paul McGann and um, written by Alfie Shaw, whose you know, previous work I've quite quite liked. Um, and quite a good guest cast as well. I've just remembered it's got Arthur Darville and Bernd Gorman and Mina Anwar. It's yeah. kind of a, a sort of who's who of... Um, you know, major characters from either Doctor Who or spin-offs, just, well, major actors, but playing different characters, which should be interesting. It's the only thing that David Tennant's actually done for Time Lord Victorious, as, as much as he's he's done, like, an absolute ton of big finish um, this year mm. during lockdown, hasn't he? But um, it's the only thing he's actually recorded for Time Lord Victorious, I think. Yeah, which I think that was something that a lot of people were expecting at some point that Big Finish would just announce that there would be a huge, you know, David Tennant led Tennant Doctor thing, and it's sort of half an hour on one side of the vinyl, basically. Is um, but um, yeah, um, I guess some of the I guess Time of Choice has been in development for quite a long time before the lock, mm. you, you know, because it does seem that a lot of David Tennant's recording for Big Finish. This year, like some of it had been planned in advance, but a lot of it is, well, we could get him because he's locked yeah. in his house, um, <laughs> to, to put it simply. Um, yeah. So as this was all planned before that, that might be part of the reason yeah. why he's not a big part of yeah, it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think um, I think it must have been planned, planned quite a while ago. Hmm. Uh, so I think the other thing here, which I don't think we got in The Night, The Fool and The Dead, is finding out who the knight, the fool, and the dead are. Yeah. That is explained in context here. If you look at the first interlude where the three doctors appear in Brain Limbo, it says the knight, the fool, and the dead. And then the next sentence is the tenth, the ninth, and the eighth. And the reason I think that's the accurate analysis is because the eighth doctor... Is looking at Gallifrey and says, "Ooh, gee, it's good to be home yeah. again." <laughs> and the ninth and the tenth look at him sideways and look at each other and go, "Whoops, he doesn't know." Mm. So the eighth Doctor has to be the dead because he was the first to die and doesn't know about the time war. Mm. And the tenth Doctor has to be the knight because he's going on on this completely foolish, destructive mission, like the knights in the Crusades. And that would make the Ninth Doctor the fool because he dresses silly and has the goofy accent, at least compared to the other two. 
So that's how I read it. The knight is ten, been, fool is nine, and dead is eight. I'm I'm a bit thrown by the idea of a, a Salford working class accent as being <laughs> goofier than um, you know the tenth dot. If anything, you know the estuary English accent is feels less um, grounded. But um, I guess that's just cultural differences. You coming from an American perspective and maybe not being used to that. But, I mean, um, yeah, my, my accent, American-wise, is the same as the Empire State Building tour guide from The Chase. So <laughs> speaking of goofy accents, I'm ground zero for goofy accents. So in this book, it makes it explicit that each of these doctors are, you know, that together they're the night before the dead. But obviously the first book doesn't explicitly say who the night before and dead is but kind of implies something different i think um like i came out of the first book thinking who is the night before and the dead and i think it's there's an interpretation that all of them could be referring to the tenth doctor or certainly the night and the fool particularly mm. and then you've got or you've i think i saw one interpretation which was that brian was the night the doctor was the fool and then I've forgotten the name of the character now because it's been a while, but the, the girl who sort of was um, not dying yeah. was was the, the dead, or possibly the Katuru were the, the dead. But yeah, this book kind of makes it into the Doctor, and I don't know whether that was Stephen Cole's intention with the title of the first book. It kind of feels more like a, a retrospective thing of Una McCormack doing that, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, I'll go back and do another one of my patented live on the spot interpretive readings because I think the way the text is written here specifically is meant to explain. So this is chapter 2 and it's page 36, at least according to the Kindle edition. The three of them met among the stars, the night, the fool, and the dead. The tenth, ninth, and the eight doctors floated in a unity of telepathic contact walking gently over the ice a lake. So when she says in the first sentence, the night, the fool, and the dead, yeah. and the very next sentence goes the tenth, the ninth, and the eighth, again, I come from a legal training background, <laughs> uh, just applying the principles of legal uh, statute or contract construction. If you're going to say the night, the fool, and the dead, the tenth, the ninth, and the eighth, basically that's what it is. That's the only way that I can interpret it. Yeah, I, I agree with that assessment of it in terms of this book. It's just because the previous book is called The Night Before and the Dead and doesn't really say any of that. I mean, obviously it's this book which has a different title, which is then actually giving you the answer to that in effect. That's kind of what we were trying to talk about, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, I didn't come out of the first book having any... Um, having drawn any conclusions on that at all. Um, but I agree with yours, Jason, here, because like you say, it's the the dead talks about something like you can't live in a universe without Gallifrey, um, which is, 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 like you say, is coming from a position of not knowing about the time war. And the knight, this, this is towards the end of the book, the knight is the one who says, uh, well, now isn't the time for recriminations. So him being the instigator of the whole thing, uh, that would make sense as well, that he, he doesn't want the recriminations of his other two incarnations yeah. as well. So, yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's absolutely spot on uh, in terms of what Una McCormick yeah. intends, um, is the dead is the eighth doctor, the knight is the tenth doctor, and the fool is the, the ninth doctor. I, c I can imagine Stephen Cole saying, I'm going to have this very enigmatic title, and you'll decide what it means. Yeah. And Una McCormick yeah. is going... No, no, no. I want to decide. I'm going to tell you in page chapter two. <laughs> this is what it means. Uh, I'll say there. Fix it for you. 
Yeah, it's interesting the sort of cross-book title referencing as well, because I remember that The Night Before and the Dead, I think, uses the phrase all flesh is grass at one point, I think, as well. So it's obviously a sort of, yeah, that kind of passing over thing. Um, and it's a, it's a, a biblical reference, isn't it? All flesh is grass, I think, originally. I'm trying to remember now where the phrase comes from. Um, I'm not sure. That's what it ties in with here with the sort of the gardening theme as well, doesn't it? Um, oh, yeah, that is quite the, um, um, has has created this sort of biodome to to save all the plant life on the planet Beringi until it can be sort of reseeded and repopulated. Uh, but you've also got this thread of the, the spider plant, which originally belongs to the eighth doctor. Yes. Um, and he sort of takes it out of his TARDIS so he can sort of brighten up his Dalek cell on the Dalek ship. Um, and then it ends up being the ninth doctor grabs it and he looks after it for a while as well. And then it, um, it ends up, Staying on the on the planet as well, doesn't it? On the uh, on Beringi, mm. which is uh, which is quite nice. Yeah, and I think it's when I think it's the ninth Doctor and his his vampire companion that get, name it as when they're together as well on his TARDIS, and it's it's Hector. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm interested to see the debates over whether Hector counts as a companion, <laughs> um, having travelled with two Doctors as well. You know, it's more than some can say. Um, and um, yeah. And then also there's a reference to that in Monstrous Beauty 3, again, in that sort of final panel that's set afterwards where there's a, a like a, almost like a cutting that the Ninth Doctor has taken from Hector, and I think he refers to it as Hector Jr. Oh, I didn't um, remember that. I need to go back and, and read, the, uh, read that. Yeah, it was, again, a bit where I read it out of order, and I'm not sure if I would have clocked it if I hadn't, but because I literally... This morning was thinking when I was coming on this. Oh, I haven't actually read Monsters Booty Free yet. I had a look at that, and yeah, it is that moment where he says, "I've got Hector Junior." It's it's an odd moment if you're just reading that comment and have no knowledge of his book. Which, again, if you read them in release order, you yeah. would have done. But it sort of makes sense retrospectively. Um, I think a lot and, of the pleasure of Time Lord Victorious is that, isn't it? Is spotting those links. Yeah. Um, and if you and and it probably adds to the the re-readability or re-listenability to stuff because if if mm. I go back now and and read Monstrous Beauty, uh, I'll pick up on that Hector thing and there might be other bits and pieces as well. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, there is an, is an appeal to that. You know, it's why people like stuff like the Marvel Cinematic Universe so much. You know, they like being able to go and oh, it's you know that thing from that thing sort of crossing over or whatever. And so you can see why that is a nice thing for Doctor Who to attempt mm. to do, even if it's ended up quite unneat in places in the result those nice sort of simple moments of oh this thing connects to that is quite quite nice um and yeah i did just google it and yeah it says all flesh is grass is um from the old testament um and it's kind of often sort of quoted but um i won't be able to say too much on how that reflects on the meaning of its use as a title for this book from just that quick five second google search but i think that is in interesting to note that it's it's coming from that so it's, it's the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 40, verse 6. A voice says, call, and it says, what shall I call? All flesh is grass, and all its kindness is like the blossom of the field. And for somebody who was raised in the Old Testament faith, this is not a tremendously important line that we go around putting on bumper stickers, <laughs> but it was picked up on by Peter in one of his letters, which became the collection of writings known as the New Testament, and it seems to have much more relevance in the Christian community, which I guess is why I didn't recognize the phrase going in. 
yeah, I, I am a Christian and I, I can't remember much of what it actually sort of means in, in Christian context. But obviously that is why I've sort of recognised it and gone, hang on a minute, that's biblical, isn't it? And yeah. It's meant to be a nice thing, but in this book here, it's more of a disgusting, gross, body horror kind of image, which is mm. why I guess I didn't like the title originally. <laughs> yeah, I think I assumed it was about the sort of, um, I guess, like ashes to ashes, sort of like, you know, returning to the... Yeah. Uh, to the earth sort of thing yeah the idea that the dead is you know what we we grow from and stuff just yeah nice yeah. cheery um <laughs> <laughs> i mean that but that, that is it again you know with a title like that and with some of the ideas of the premise this book could have been quite a sort of dark and somber and it kind of isn't really and um i guess partly you know, maybe that's not what you want from a Doctor Who book, but, but then when it is this premise, and I suppose we've kind of looped back to what we were talking about at the very start, now it does, it's a book of co- contradictions, I think, but um, there's there's some enjoyment to be had in it, certainly. Definitely, it's it's quite freewheeling as well, um, or it feels that way, doesn't mm. it? Because they got the whole of the Dark Times to, to play in, um, and they do visit a couple of different planets, and you get some really good sort of set pieces and imagery with the, we didn't really talk about the, the Death Brokers, who are these huge, um, like metallic creatures, uh, and then they send the dragons after them and things like that. These kind of uh, like iron dragons or something. So I think it paints. Yeah. It does help to paint the dark times as like a very different era of technology and life and things as well. Yeah, I think I think the other thing about it that's part of that sort of freewheeling nature of it is while the night before the dead, the previous book has a sort of clear. You know, it, it's building to something constantly. Like, it starts quite slow and gets faster and builds to this big climax. This book is kind of... It's starting at a climax, and it's kind of... It, it feels... It doesn't really feel like it's building to something as much because the the big confrontation at the start between where you've got these two doctors, you know, the vampires and the Daleks and all these mercenaries, that feels as dramatic and as big a thing to me as at the end the sort of symbiote's trying to attack Gallifrey if not more in terms of a confrontation so there's not rather than this sort of upwards trajectory sort of building to something and then resolving it it kind of feels like it's constantly at this sort of high level of big excitement big things happening you know um Daleks exploding stuff and so it, it, it doesn't have that same sort of nice feeling of pulling you along as it kind of raises in like a traditional structure it's kind of it's it's flat, not in the sense of nothing happening, but in the sense of a pretty steady amount of very intense things happening. And so it, I think that makes it feel odder as a book and odder sort of structurally. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it's almost a shame that the, given it's, it's multimedia nature that, um, and, I, and I guess this was all planned before Christopher Eccleston was signed to Big Finish, uh, that it wasn't something we could hear the three doctors interacting that it's on mm-hmm. the page instead yeah because that would have made this a, like a huge thing if, if, if Big Finish was, could say yeah we've got Paul McGann Davidson and Christopher Eccleston in an audio together I mean who wouldn't pay to listen to that like um, whereas I suppose that is a multi-doctor story on the page you know there's n- none of that sort of excitement of oh my goodness you've got these three actors together it's kind of like well we've written some words yeah. um, but not not to sort of devalue the books, but in terms of the um, 
it, it doesn't have the same sort of, isn't it impressive that we've sort of pulled this off and got these people together and it, it doesn't have the same sort of hype and excitement, which I guess is why, you know, Big Finish is so popular because it can do things like have Christopher Eccleston come back after um, 16 years. be fascinating to see if he does get um, a multi-doctor story um, as, as part of his run. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear that, but again, I don't know. It's sort of because it's so early days with Christopher Eccleston doing you know, stuff like that. You, you don't know what he's open to personally and what st- sort of stuff yeah. he'll turn down and what stuff he'll just go. And it's, I think that's part of what is kind of lovely about all the stuff that David Tennant is doing a big finish these days is it feels like he'll just do anything, you know, because he's got this multi-doctor stories with four that's come out and then ones with five and six coming up. And then now he's going to be in an episode of the, the Torchwood audio drama series, just with Jack and Yanto, and like there's a just it kind of it feels like David Tennant is well into the big finish fold at the moment, where they could announce him in just about any range or anything, and I wouldn't be that surprised. Yeah, I don't want to spook Christopher Eccleston um, too early, do they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I, I do look forward to hearing what Chris Eccleston does with Big Finish in, in the future. Um, Definitely, yeah, that's that's going to be um, the first ones out in twenty twenty one. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Mm. We're in twenty twenty one now, of course. That's that's this year. Um, when you say it, it still sounds yeah. like the future. <laughs> but um, that's true. Yeah, I do keep forgetting that. And I'm not back at work yet. I think that's what's uh, <laughs> still in right. <laughs> I've spent most of the last 75 minutes throwing darts at the entire concept, so I may as well just come in now and give it a much happier finish. I was a bit thrown off at the beginning because there wasn't much context for the casual reader. I was able to gather this was a jokey book that wasn't taking itself seriously, and I was able to gather that the Tenth Doctor had gone all master and was trying to conquer time and it was so bad that the Daleks and the Great Vampires had to be brought in to stop him. I read the first quarter of the book in a day and said, ugh, what am I in for? (laughs) Uh, Once I persevered and got through the pivot, which is that this is an audacious Dalek plan to rewrite the history of the universe and make themselves invincible... Viewing it as a Dalek invasion story, I really became much more appreciative of it. And even though it is jokey and feels like the author wasn't perhaps taking it as seriously as her Star Trek Picard novel written in the same year, she's a very good writer, and there are some Mm. really good, strong lines in here. And some of the humor is not self-parody at all. So the Tenth Doctor names his warship the HMS Donna because... There's no arguing with it. That's really funny. (laughs) So I have some issues with the concept of this multi-platform story. I would have to quarantine for two weeks, use my $600 stimulus check to fly to England, (laughs) busk in the streets for a couple of weeks to raise the cash to buy the vinyl and get a new plane ticket home, and then come back and buy a record player, which I haven't owned since 1992, and listen to the thing, and that that isn't happening. And then, of course, there's the dolls. I'm missing out on this five-page short story that comes with the figurines. So I have issues with this whole platform, and maybe the pandemic was bad luck, and it sort of destroyed their plan before it got started. 
setting aside all of that, this is a good book with a good premise, and the second half is really solid. And I'm sure if I had read it in sequence, it would have been that much better. But as a standalone book, if you can get past the first three or four chapters, there is some really good stuff here, and that would be my final analysis. Yeah, I think after that I would like to chime in as well, and I think there is a sense that we've been quite critical at times, and I, I think fairly, but Una McCormack is a very good writer, and this book is, is quite, you know, enjoyable. I, there was never a moment where I was, you know, not wanting to go back to reading it, even if it didn't drag me along quite as quickly as The Night Before the Dead did, particularly near the end. Um, but it's it was, it was an enjoyable read, and, um, you know, I, I can't say that I'd ever return to it, but I also wouldn't want to put people off reading it if they think, you know, it'd be interesting to them from the idea of, you know, multi-doctor story and, and Daleks, which, you know, is still pretty exciting despite, you know, everything else. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a it's an enjoyable book. Like you say, it's quite lightly written. It's much lighter in tone than The Night, The Fool and The Dead. Um, and I, I guess probably more so potentially than any other of, of Una McCormick's books, especially Doctor Who books. She's She has to pick up from another entire novel, resolve that immediate thing, um, and then and then basically resolve the whole Time Lord Victorious storyline. Um, certainly for two of the Doctors, I think. I don't think... I think this is the end of the run mm. of the Tenth and the Ninth Doctors. The Eighth Doctor's going off to have one more big finish adventure. So she's got um, a lot to achieve with this book, which I think she, she basically does a really kind of good job with. Um and uh, yeah, it's basically it's up to the editors, really, isn't it, to make sure it all hangs together, <laughs> um, you know, more so than uh, than any individual writer of it. Um, so yeah, if it doesn't quite sort of tie up with with some of the others, it's um, it's not really her fault. Um, I think, yeah, she does um, she she does a great job with what she's got here. Yeah, it's a pretty demanding brief, and she did manage to deliver something that's pretty fun. So yeah. That's great. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, it's been great discussing this book with you. I will put links in the show notes to where we can find each of you on Twitter and each of your blogs. Um, and uh, as well as your blog, Jason, you're, you are tweeting your way through the classic series. Uh, you're just, as we record, just hitting the start of the Trouton era. Yes. So I've been on lockdown since March, as have the rest of us, and that means I don't spend two hours a day commuting to work and bringing my kid back and forth to all of her various uh, extracurricular activities. So I realized in March that I had much more free time than I'm used to having. So I started binge-watching entire runs of American TV series that I grew up with starting in March, watching two episodes a night. And then I realized by October, I'm missing out on a chance here to just go through and watch all of Doctor Who in order, which I tried to do during the 50th anniversary year and just was unable to finish. So I started on October 27th watching the first two episodes of An Unearthly Child. And Loose Cannon, which does the reconstructions for all the missing Hartnell episodes does have a page up on Daily Motion where they have almost all of their reconstructions. So I've been able to watch the entire series, either the actual surviving episodes or very good reconstructions of, at a professional-grade fan quality. And more by accident than by design, I reached the regeneration on December 31st. So the very first thing I did after the ball dropped on Times Square was watch 10th Planet Episode 4, 
Uh, January 1st, I jumped out of order to watch Revolution of the Daleks. And Mark, after you and I spent 75 minutes breaking down the trailer, uh, that recording ended up being longer than the episode itself. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure you'll record about that separately, but I think much of what we thought about and guessed was going to happen in our preview episode really did come to pass, so that was nice. Yesterday, I watched Adventure in Space and Time, which was the Mark Gatiss-written docudrama about the making of the Hartnell and Verity Lambert years. Uh, I started them last night on Power of the Daleks. I am taking a five-day break to binge-watch Cobra Kai, and then I'll go back and finish the Troughton years starting, I guess, January 8th, and then I'll go straight through to the Pertwee years. So, Mark, thank you very much for retweeting my links. The very first time you retweeted my binge watch, I gained about 25 new followers in a day. So you've been a very good friend of my Twitter account. And I've got some pretty good conversations going with different fans. And if you start following me by the time this records and broadcasts, I will just about be wrapping up Power of the Daleks. And then I'm going to go straight through on there up until the war games and beyond. So again, thanks very much for the shout out. No problem. Um, I definitely recommend uh, following me on Twitter with your analysis of those stories. Um, I will, as I say, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Um, and Bryn, you're, you're working on your blog still. Anything else um, you've got coming up? Um, well, n- not coming up, but just um, released quite recently. There's a, a, f- a friend of mine, um, George Oakes, wanted to put together a anthology of Christmas-themed Doctor Who short stories, and I, I contributed to that, and I believe um should be able to find it quite easy because it's my pinned tweet at the moment. And so, yeah, if you're missing something in your life from there not being a Doctor Who Christmas special this year and you're not completely sick of um, Christmas time yet, I absolutely recommend um, giving a read to that an- anthology. There's eight short stories. The, the original idea was um, that it would be sort of our group of friends on my university um, writing course at Bournemouth, but we also got in some guest contributors, including... Um, Harry Draper, who did the um, big finish, um, Paul Sprague's short trip a couple of years ago now, the last day at work. Um, and um, yeah, I'd it'd be lovely if, if people would be interested in reading um, any of that PDF. And it's, it's completely free, so yeah. Fantastic. I'll put a link in the show notes to that one as well. Well, thank you very much again. Uh, thank you much, very much for listening at home. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.